two or three weeks ago, three, maybe, maybe four weeks by now, I, I got to go camping with my family, uh, Amy, my wife and I, and our three kids. Uh, we went camping for five days up at the Red River Gorge in Kentucky, and uh, just a beautiful place. If you've never been there, really encourage you to go. And, uh, I don't know how many of you have been camping with a four and a six-year-old before. Um, it's not the most relaxing experience for the parents. Um, you are constantly having to set up boundaries and constantly having to reinforce those boundaries. And so, you know, that looked something like this. We had a fire ring at our campsite where in the evenings we would build a fire because it was actually cool up there in the evenings. And um, during the day we had this boundary. We said, hey, boys, you are not allowed to play in the fire ring. It doesn't matter if there's a fire in there or not. You are not to stick anything in there. You're not to touch the metal ring. You're not to pick up the ashes. You are not to play in that fire ring. And repeatedly having to say, hey, what are you doing? I told you not to touch the firing. Elijah, get out of the firing. Don't get in the firing. Constantly having to come back and reinforce these boundaries and expecting them every time to obey after I tell them. Even having to give consequences when they repeatedly step past the boundary that I've given them. And I can remember one point with Elijah when he did this, I had to pull him aside. He's my six-year-old. And I had to, had to sit him down and have this conversation with him. And I had to say, listen, Elijah, I need you to obey I need you to obey. Because here's what I knew. Like, I wanted to build a real fire in that fire ring in the evening. And, and if I couldn't trust him when there was no fire in the ring, then how am I going to trust him when there is a fire? Or I also knew that we were going to be doing a lot of hiking that week, and some of those hikes would take us right along the side of sheer cliffs. And I needed to know that, that Elijah and Torin, my boys, would listen to my voice and obey and trust me because I needed to know that I could trust them not to go too close to a cliff. So I remember sitting to Elijah and telling him, how in the world am I going to be able to trust you around a real fire or a cliff if I can't trust you to obey my words in this simple thing when we're at our campsite? You see, Elijah's disobedience and Torrance as well, both of them, their disobedience, they revealed something to me about them. Their disobedience revealed something to me about the kind of weight that they give my words. Their obedience or their disobedience revealed to me something that was going in the, on in their heart in relation to the words and the boundaries that I set for them. Obedience and disobedience is just part of, part of our, our walk as humanity. Obedience and disobedience reveal something that is happening in the heart level of those of us who are either obeying or disobeying. This is just a, a reality that I face as a parent all the time, and it's a reality that all of us also are going to face in our walk with God. Today, we're going to take a close look at how God feels about disobedience, how he feels about obedience, and, and the reality is it's probably going to make some of us uncomfortable when we look at it. And all week, as I've been prepping for this, I've been thinking to you, man, God, this is not a super popular thing to talk about, like how much you delight in obedience and how you don't delight in disobedience, but we're going to see this at, the wor at work in the life of Moses and in his walk with God, and what I want us to see is that obedience or disobedience reveals the heart's posture and responsiveness to God. So let's look in Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to walk through this story verse by verse. Um, starting in, let's just read the first verse together. It says this, In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh, and there Miriam died and was buried. Okay, so everybody knows what the desert of Zin is, right? Everybody been there before? Like, this is, these, these names are unfamiliar places for us. So here's, here's what the writer is trying to help us see. They're setting the context. It says in the first month, it doesn't say the year, but the location and what is happening in that place give us some context as to where we are in the journey of the Israelites. 
Some of you may remember two weeks ago when we were together in Numbers 13 and 14, the Israelites were at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran at the desert of Zin, the same exact place that they find themselves now. And two weeks ago, we saw that they were poised and ready to go into the promised land, but they sent these spies up. And remember, they did not trust in the power of God's presence and his ability to deliver them into the promised land. And so in this exact location, where we were looking two weeks ago, the Israelites received this consequence because of their lack of trust in God. And instead of entering the promised land, they were sent to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And so now we find ourselves in this exact same location and Miriam is dying. And here that gives us some clue as to where we are. I know it's only been two weeks for us, but for the Israelites, it's been almost 40 years. And so they're back in the same place. Their time of wandering is coming to a close. And most scholars believe that where we are right here is the first month of their final year of wandering in the desert. Because Miriam was a part of that older generation that was going to die away before they could enter the promised land. And so here we are, first month of their final year of wandering, and they come back to the same place that they were in two weeks ago. And it kind of leaves us asking this question, like, are they ready? Like, is this new generation ready to walk into God's promises? They're back in this same place, familiar setting, familiar place. Are they finally ready to redeem themselves from all the things that have been happening up to this point? I mean, have you ever been there before? We've had this opportunity to step into a, a moment to redeem yourself from something where you messed it up in the past. If you've ever played a sport, you've probably been there. I remember I played baseball for like two years when I was in middle school. I was terrible. Uh, but I played baseball, and I really wanted to be a pitcher. And I really wanted to pitch. And my coach, because he was nice to me, sometimes would give me this chance to pitch. And I can remember the first time I pitched, I didn't even make it through an inning before he pulled me back out again because I was so bad. And I'll never forget, like the second and third time he put me in, I thought, all right, this is my chance. I can show my team that I can do this. I can show my coach that I can do this. I can totally redeem myself from the places that I've messed up. All of us have had those moments, whether it's in the context of a relationship or your job or a sport or school, this moment where you've messed up in the past and you're ready to step into this opportunity to redeem yourself. And that's where we find the Israelites, this new generation, same place. Are they finally ready? Well, let's look what happens. Look in verses two through five. Now, there was no water for the community. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and they said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And so we read these four verses and it's almost like, What in the Are you serious? They still haven't gotten it. We read that and we're like, how in the world will, will these people ever learn that God is with them and that God longs to provide? Every time there's, a, there's a, an inconvenience or a mess up, they start longing for Egypt again. And so we read this section of scripture and automatically we start wondering like, I wonder if they're ever going to get it. And if you've been reading the story up to this point, you kind of think you know what's coming next. I mean, every step of the way, the Israelites mess up. They treat the Lord's faithfulness with contempt. And we see this scenario play out where the Lord says, how long am I going to put up with these stubborn, stiff-necked people? How long are they going to treat my goodness with contempt? 
And the Lord's anger begins to rise, and we find Moses praying, and the Lord relenting and having mercy on the people. We've seen this play out so many times in this story, over and over and over again. And so you read this complaint, and you almost, you're bracing yourself because you almost think you know what is going to come next. This unveiling of God's frustration and anger, and I think Moses and Aaron had the same response. Look in verse 6, we'll read verses 6 through 8. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting, and they fell face down. It's like they're just waiting for it. They're waiting for God's wrath and his anger, and they go, and they're like, oh, the people are grumbling again. And they bow down before the tent, and they're just bracing themselves for what God is going to do. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. I love this. It's like the surprise turn in the story. We're like, wait a minute, what? Like every other time, God has been so frustrated, and now there's like this moment of grace. And you can imagine Moses and Aaron are probably equally surprised. Like, wait, what, God? You're just, you're going to give them you want to, you're going to give them water? There's like this surprise, undeserved grace from God towards the people that are grumbling against him. And here's one of the things I noticed this week. It's just this reminder about how God will always be faithful to his promises, and nothing will keep the Lord from fulfilling his promises. Not even an unfaithful, grumbling, complaining group of people. And here's what I mean. You remember two weeks ago, Numbers 14.31, God looks at the generation that didn't trust him. Because up till that point, the promise had been for the descendants of Abraham, that the descendants of Abraham would receive this promised land of Canaan. And so God looked at the generation that refused to trust him, and he says, tell you what, you are not going to enter the promised land. But then he made this other promise, Numbers 14.31, your descendants, your children, the next generation will inherit the promised land. They will enter into it, but you won't. So God makes this promise to this generation that we're looking at right now. He says they will enter the promised land. And so we see him responding to the faithfulness of his promise. He responds in grace, even though they're still not trusting him. He says, okay, I'll give them water. I will take care of them. I want them to see that I am able, that I am with them. And out of his grace, he responds with water. But I think Moses and Aaron were probably not just surprised by God's grace. They were probably surprised by the nature that God wanted to provide through. So this scenario is not the first time that Moses has found himself here. If you read back in Exodus chapter 17, not long after the Israelites had left Egypt, they found themselves in a place with no water, thirsty, grumbling against God. And God gave Moses his instructions. He says, take your staff, very similar to this, take your staff and I'll stand beside you, hit this rock and water will come out. And so now God is saying, Moses, I'm going to provide again, but this time it's going to be even more miraculous. You're not going to hit the rock. You're just going to speak to this rock. You're going to go to that rock over there, and you're going to say, come on out, water, and water is going to come out of that rock to, so that the people can drink and their livestock can drink. And so you can imagine Moses like, so, wow, what? This new miraculous way that he is going to provide. So not only are Moses and Aaron caught off guard by the radical grace of God towards the Israelites, but also through the miraculous power that he wants to display to show that he is holy amongst the people. So every step of the way in this journey of Moses so far, we've seen Moses just respond with faithfulness and obedience to what God wants him to do. But we're going to see another twist in the story here, starting in verse 9. Look what happens. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. 
He and Aaron gathered the assembly in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm, and he struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock were able to drink. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I'm going to give them. And so here we find this amazing moment, another turn in the plot for us, where Moses, who has been like so steady in his faithfulness and his obedience to God, he alters the plan in what would seem to us an almost seemingly slight manner. He still brings water about, but he does it in a different way than God told him, and he is met with a pretty harsh consequence. Can you imagine what a blow this consequence must have felt like to Moses? For 40 years, he has been faithfully leading these people that God told him to lead. For 40 years, he's been faithful to God. He has done all the things that God has told him to do. He has represented God to the people even when it was difficult. He has been kind to the people. He has prayed for the people. For 40 years, Moses has been walking in obedience to what God wants him to do. And here in this moment, he makes this one mistake, and God says, Moses, you're disqualified. You do not get to enter into the promised land that I'm going to lead everybody else into. We read this, and we kind of go, wait, what? Man, God, that feels so harsh. It feels so harsh, God. For you to meet with Moses, your faithful servant, in one act of disobedience, now suddenly he has this very heavy consequence before him. And we're kind of left scratching our heads going, what is going on right here with God and with Moses? And in order to understand what's going on, I think to get a clear picture of God and what's happening in this moment of disobedience... We have to get a a truer understanding of the nature of Moses' offense and why it was such a big deal to God. And there's different thoughts on what Moses actually did that was wrong. You know, some people will focus on Moses' words, some people his his actions, some his attitude, and here's what I mean. Some would say that that the, the fault for Moses was in the words that he used. So when he stood before the Israelites, you'll notice what he said. He said, do we need to bring you water from this rock? In other words, he stands up there with Moses and Aaron, the two of them, the two brothers, and he's so frustrated. He says, listen, do you need me and Aaron to bring water out of this rock for you? And so by claiming that it was he and Aaron bringing the water out, he is thus placing himself on a level playing field with God. And so many would say, hey, Moses' sin was that he was robbing God of his glory. And he was saying, Aaron and I deserve the glory, and we will bring you water out of this rock. So some would say that it's his words. Some would say that it's Moses' actions, the fact that God told him, hey, I want you to speak to the rock. But Moses instead went and struck the rock. And so it's still like Moses is kind of being obedient, but not really. If you're a parent and you know what this looks like, and very recently uh, with my son Torin, he's four, uh, he was refusing to go to bed one night. Literally, he's laying in the middle of the hallway, and I'm going, Torn, you'll get in bed, Torn, you'll get in bed, and you wouldn't listen. He's whining about being thirsty or whining about something. He always says, it's bedtime. There's always something to whine about right around bedtime. So finally, after he refused to listen and after I'd given him a drink and done everything I needed to do, I had to get so stern with him, I walked up and said, Torin, you need to stand up and go get in your bed right now. Walk to your room, get in bed. And it's like, at that moment, he knew because the tone of my voice changed. <laughs> he knew that it was serious. And so he kind of looked at me. And I remember he locked eyes with me, and it was like he was saying, okay, Dad, I'll obey, 
but I'm doing this my way. And instead of standing up and walking to his room, he literally started dragging himself down the hallway, <laughs> looking, looking at me like, okay, dad, I'm obeying, but I'm doing this my way. And I know what's going on in his heart, right? It's like this reluctant obedience. Okay, dad, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And some say that's what we see happening in Moses here. He says, okay, God, you want me to speak to the rock? I'm frustrated though. And so I'll obey, but I'm not going to do it the way you want me to. I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it. And so some say that it's his words claiming the same glory that God deserves. Some would say it's his actions of hitting the rock. Some would say that it's his attitude. Some would say, you you look, it's amazing. He has just heard from God and God shows up with this gracious tone for the Israelites. But look how Moses talks to the people. He walks up and it's almost as if he's frustrated and disappointed in the undeserved grace that God has given. And so now he's going to give the Israelites the tongue lashing that he thinks God should have given them. And he walks up, you rebels. You hear this this tone, he's looking at them, you stiff-necked, stubborn people. And who can blame Moses for being frustrated, right? I mean, for 40 years, he, he, he would have been in the promised land 40 years ago. If it had not been for the disobedience and for the stubborn hearts of the the generation before this one. So you know he's probably frustrated. But it's like he thinks they don't deserve the grace that God gave them. And he's frustrated at this, this seemingly undeserved grace. And instead of going and showing them the grace of God by speaking to the rock, he lashes out with an attitude of vengeance and anger towards them. So some would say that it's Moses' words. Some would say it's his actions. Some would say it's his attitude. In all reality, it's probably a combination of all three But what's happening here, regardless of what the specific act is, the disobedience of Moses reveals something about Moses and his posture towards God. Just like my boy's disobedience around a campfire ring reveals something about them and their heart towards me and the weight that they give to my words, Moses' disobedience reveals something about his heart and where he is with God and the weight that he gives to God's word. You see, Moses is revealing that in his heart of hearts, he, he does trust God, but he thinks that maybe his way is better. He thinks that maybe it's not that important to do everything exactly the way that God tells him to, and that it's probably okay for him to take things into his own hands and do things the way that he wants to do them. And I think, man, it, just as a side note, as I think about that, I'm like, you know, I've, I've been following Jesus for a long time. I, I grew up in the church and uh, I confessed Jesus as Lord at the age of nine. You know, it's like, I've been following Jesus for a long time. Some of you probably have as well. Sometimes, isn't it tempting to think, man, I've been walking with Jesus so long, I can just kind of coast. That I can just hit cruise control, and my walk with God is just so second nature. But if there's ever anyone you could assume that to be true about, it would be Moses, right? And here we find him in this place after 40 years, and yet somehow he's gotten to this place where his heart is just off a little bit, so that he's not trusting completely in the ways of God. And this act of disobedience reveals something about the heart of Moses. And God says, you want to lead my people into the promised land? And yet you can't obey me in this one simple act. And what we see at work here in the disobedience of Moses and in the consequence, the heavy consequence that God gives him, what we see at work is a theme and a truth that you just can't escape. If you read the Bible cover to cover, Over and over again, you're going to see that the God of the Bible, our God, delights in obedience. He delights in obedience. Obedience, obeying God, really matters to him. And our obedience or our disobedience reveals something about the hearts of humanity and their posture towards God. God requires and delights in obedience. 
Now, some, some will go, now, Aaron, this is a, but Aaron, this is like an Old Testament story, and God was really harsh in the Old Testament, and don't we get a different picture of God in the New Testament? Isn't it, isn't it true that there's this more gentle version of God who, who obedience isn't quite as big of a deal? We see that in Jesus, right? Isn't that what happens when, when Jesus comes? Doesn't it change? But it's not really the case. You see, if you flip over and you start reading the New Testament and you start looking for what Jesus thinks about obedience, you start seeing that Jesus doesn't come and wipe out the requirement of obedience. No, Jesus comes and holds it up. In John chapter 14, Jesus over and over again is going to reaffirm this idea that obedience reveals something about our hearts. In verse 15 of John 14, Jesus says this, if, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my... Obeying the command reveals something about your heart and its posture towards God. In verse 21 of chapter 14, he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. He says, listen, keeping commands reveals something about the posture of our heart towards God. Verse 23 in John 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching over and over again in one talk with his disciples. Jesus hitting this idea, hey, listen, your obedience, obedience reveals the posture and the position of your heart before God. Obedience mattered to Jesus greatly in Matthew 28, his last kind of spiel and commissioning to his disciples. He says, listen, I want you to go into all the world making disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the last thing he says, I want you to teach them to what? Obey everything I have commanded you. No, Jesus did not wipe out the importance of obedience. Jesus came in and uplifted and held up the importance of obedience in the lives of God's people. Obedience matters. Obedience reveals something about our hearts. You know, the, the truth is that God delights in the obedience of his people. He delights in it. And so the question we have to ask is not, does obedience matter, or does God require obedience, or does God delight in obedience? The answer to that question is really clear. Yes, God delights in obedience. Yes, it matters. Yes, God cares about the way that we obey him. The question we have to ask is, is it good news that God delights in obedience? Is it good news that God delights in obedience? You know, I think oftentimes when we think about God requiring obedience, we picture this heavy-handed disciplinarian who's harsh and cruel. But what if it's actually part of the good news that God delights in our obedience? You see, obedience not only reveals something about our hearts, but obedience also produces something in our lives. Obedience reveals the posture of our hearts, but it also produces fruit and it unleashes the promises of God in our lives. Here's what I mean. You know, Jesus would talk about this a lot when he talks about obedience. In one of Jesus' most famous sermons, Matthew 5 through 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's this beautiful teaching where Jesus lays out the way of life that his followers are supposed to have. And in this sermon, Jesus is going to cover so many different topics of what it looks like to walk with him. He, he, he's going to talk about everything from, from sexuality and what we do with our sexuality and marriage. He's going to talk about the spiritual life and how you walk with him spiritually. He's going to talk about money. He's going to talk about how we treat our enemies. He's going to talk about how we treat those who know us, how we deal with giving and generosity. All these things Jesus is going to lay out. Here's what it looks like for you to walk with me, for you to follow me. And what I love about the Sermon on the Mount is that it is bookended, it is bookended by why it even matters that we walk in obedience. And here's what I mean. If you start at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with what's called the Beatitudes. And he says, listen, 
You are blessed when you are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Hey, listen, you are blessed when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you're going to see God. You are blessed when you are pure in heart. You are blessed when, and he goes on and on, he starts naming all these things of like, listen, if you will walk in these ways, then you are blessed because it unleashes and unlocks the promises of God in your life. He's saying, listen, blessed are you when you follow all these ways that I'm getting ready to show you. And here's why. And then he walks through this Sermon on the Mount and he lays out all of these ways that he calls us to step in to walking with him and living for him. And then he ends the sermon the same way. He says, listen, if you will hear these words of mine and you'll go put them into practice, man, you are like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Your life will be able to stand firm even in the midst of the most drastic storms that may come along in your life. Culture falling apart around you, division in your nation, Stand on the rock of Jesus. He's like, if you will walk in obedience to my ways, hear them and walk in obedience to them, the most shocking and destabilizing storms that may come along in life will not rock the foundation that you're built on. You see, obedience, obedience doesn't just reveal the posture of our heart, but obedience unlocks the promises of God. Obedience brings fruit into our lives. Obedience is actually part of the good news that when we walk with God, we receive the promises and the goodness of God in our life right here and right now. And so obedience reveals and obedience also produces, but disobedience does something different. Disobedience also reveals and it also produces something. You know, what does it reveal? What does disobedience reveal? You know, I think disobedience first, it reveals a lot of times a place of arrogance in our heart. And here's what I mean by that. It's kind of this idea that God says, hey, here's the way. And we go, but God, I think I know a better way. I think I know a better way, God. I, I think I can handle this a little bit differently. This is why God would look at Moses in Numbers chapter 20, and he says, listen, because you did not trust me. Moses, because you did not trust me. This is in verse 12 of Numbers 20. In other words, Moses, because you did not trust that what I was giving you was the best way, and you thought that your way was better. This is one of the reasons that Moses received the consequence that he did, because of the arrogance in his heart to not trust in the ways of God. And we do this a lot, don't we? We say, listen, God, I know, I know that you've laid out a way for us to live. Jesus, I know, Jesus, that you say that I should love my enemies and I should pray for those who persecute me. But I mean, seriously, like, I, I think I know a better way to deal with my enemies, Jesus. I think I know what's really going to bring about resolution. And so we go on and we hold on to bitterness and resentment instead of forgiving. We hold on to those things or we seek retaliation and we seek revenge. It's because we don't really trust that Jesus's way is the best way. And we begin to think arrogantly that maybe my solution for this problem that I have with this other person is actually going to be a better solution. Or we do this with lots of things, don't we? Or we thank God, I know that you're saying this is the way. But man, I think, I think the way I want to do it might actually resolve this better than the way you're telling me to do it. And so oftentimes, disobedience reveals a place of arrogance in our heart, oftentimes where we don't even know that we're arrogant. We don't even know that we're feeling that way towards God, and yet disobedience reveals that in our heart. Disobedience reveals arrogance, but disobedience can also reveal apathy. So sometimes it's not, God, I think my way is better. Sometimes it's like, God, I know you said that, but it doesn't really matter, Right? I mean, it's not really that important. It's not that important the way that you want me to handle these different aspects of my life. I mean, Jesus, I know, I know in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, I know you talk about lust. 
and that it's a problem. I know you talk about sexuality. I know you talk about money and being careful how my heart is oriented towards money. I know you talk about that, Jesus, but does that really matter? I mean, that doesn't really matter that much in my life, does it? I mean, if I'm doing things that don't really hurt anybody else, then it's okay. I should be able to do what I want, right? And we get into this place of apathy where we think the ways of Jesus don't really matter that much. And this is why God says to Moses in number 20, he doesn't just say, you didn't trust me, but he also says, you did not honor me as holy. You did not honor me as holy, Moses. You see, the ways of God are holy because God is holy. And over and over again, he'll say to us throughout the word, he'll say, listen, be holy because I am holy. Be holy as your heavenly father is holy. And oftentimes we will take things that feel irrelevant or we say that Jesus was speaking 2,000 years ago and so his ways are outdated and old-fashioned. And we say, well, it didn't really matter. That was important then, but it's not now. And God says, no, it matters. Will you honor me as holy? Ethos, will we honor God and his way as holy in the culture around us? Where we assume that our ways are better or that it just doesn't really matter that much. So our... Our disobedience reveals this place of arrogance or apathy in our heart, and our disobedience can also undercut our ability to walk in the promises of God right now. Where obedience unlocks the promises of God in our life, disobedience completely undercuts our ability to walk in the joy and the freedom that God has called us into. Now, I know, I know as I talk about this, some of us are going, oh, man, Aaron, I don't know. What, what happened to grace? <laughs> Like, what happened to grace? Like, because what it sounds like you're saying is that I need to obey in order to get the promises. But I thought, I thought this whole thing was built upon grace, that the goodness of God was ushered in through grace. And, and this is a true statement. And here's the thing about grace. You know, grace, grace actually is what initiates. It is grace that brought us into a relationship with the holy God that we can even know how we're supposed to live. You see, there's this other thing that disobedience reveals in our hearts. Sometimes it's not arrogance. Sometimes it's not apathy. Sometimes it's just ignorance. Sometimes we don't know what God requires of us. Sometimes we don't know that God calls us to a different way of living. It's not, I know better. It's not, it doesn't matter. It's, man, I just didn't know that, God. And this is true for all of us. I love what Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm actually just going to read that to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 5. Ephesians 1 of our Bibles, that's page 814. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says it like this. He says, listen, as for you, you were at one time dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This disobedience of of, of ignorance. But listen to verse 3. He says, all of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by our very nature deserving of the wrath of God. But listen to verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. You see, here's what grace does. Grace initiates this saving relationship between a broken humanity and a holy and good God. So Jesus extends us the grace. He says, listen, I have grace for you. And then he says, now will you love the one who gave you grace? Jesus extends grace and then he says, if you love me in this grace, then you will obey my commands. It is grace that got us into this relationship with a glorious and good God. And it is obedience that reveals the posture of our hearts 
towards the God that so freely poured out his grace upon us. It is grace that brings us in, and it is obedience that unlocks our ability to keep walking in freedom as we love God and posture our hearts in humility towards him. Now, here, here's what I want you to hear. It's really important. Is that this is not, this whole thing with Moses and this thing about obedience, and this is not about salvation. And Moses' salvation is not what's on the line here. Okay, now, Moses did not get to go into the promised land, but we're not questioning Moses' salvation. And here, here's how I know that. If you read in Mark 9, there's this crazy story where we actually see Jesus, in the, I mean Moses, in the New Testament. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. If you've never read that story, go read it. Jesus is on the mountain. He gets transfigured into the glory of God. And who's there but Moses and Elijah? It's like Moses is sitting with Jesus. So we're not questioning whether or not Moses eternally fell out of favor with God. No, we're questioning about the consequences that disobedience brings into our very real lives right now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, but sometimes there is consequence for those who are in Jesus who continue to walk in disobedience. There can be consequence in our life. It's not about salvation. There is a direct correlation between our obedience and our ability to walk in the current promises of God. Ultimately, what it comes down to is this. For those of us who want to follow Jesus, who've given our lives to him, are we willing, upon receiving the radical grace of God, to allow our lives to be completely reoriented, to orbit around God, instead of expecting God and everything else to orbit around us. Our culture says that you deserve for everything else to orbit around you, that you should have your ways, or that everything should orbit around me, the individual, or us as humanity. And God says, no, everything should orbit around me. Everything should orbit around me. See, we are me-centered. God is God-centered. This is the natural order of things for God to be at the middle and for all of humanity and all of creation to be orbiting around God. Now, I know if you don't know God or if you project onto God this kind of human understanding of what that looks like, we go, man, what a selfish God. Why would God be so selfish as to want himself to be at the middle all the time with us rearranging our lives to orbit around him? But this is the natural order of things. Think of it this way. You know, if you think about our solar system, the sun sits at the middle. And because the earth is where it is in its orbit, and because the earth orbits in the right place at the right time around the sun, then life is made possible on our planet. But nobody looks at the sun and goes, man, the sun is just so selfish. Like the sun expects all these planets just to revolve around it all the time. Man, what a selfish star that is. Nobody looks at the sun and says that, right? Because we know that if the sun were to move any closer to us, we would burn up. If we were to move any further away from the sun, then we would freeze. It is because of where we are in our orbit that life is made possible on our planet. And it is when we are in the right relationship with God that life is made possible with us. It's the natural order of things. With God at the middle, life is possible. When we orbit around God, life is possible. He knows you. He knows you. He knows what you need better than you do. I know that's hard to believe, but this is the story of our God in the Bible. He knows you, he loves you, and he longs for you to have life and life to the fullest. And he has freely extended to you relationship with him through grace in Jesus Christ. And he says, now, will you love me? And will you walk in obedience to the ways that I'm giving you? Because it reveals something to me about your heart, and it unlocks the promises of the kingdom in your life right now. We're going to go take communion in a minute. 
And I've been wrestling all week with God, how do I send everyone to communion on this? What is the, you know, normally it's really fun to stand up here and give you this really encouraging and inspiring thing. And I feel like today the message is, hey, are you obeying? Where are you walking in disobedience to God and his ways? And, and that is the question. But here's what I want to say to you. Like, repentance brings life. Walking in obedience brings life. And I've, I've, I've been seeing this in my own life. I mean, I mean just, just in the last two to three weeks, I've seen this. I've seen these places where I have stepped out of obedience with God. I've seen places where instead of forgiving my wife and walking with grace and kindness towards her, I have held on to resentments. And that camping trip I told you about that we went on, I mean, we fought like crazy. I was such a jerk. I mean, you can ask her, she'll tell you. I was such a jerk. And so much of that was the outflowing of these places where I was not walking in obedience. Jesus tells me to have grace and to love my wife as Christ loves the church, that I should lay my life down for her. And instead, I'm holding on to every little thing that she does and using it as ammo against her. I was also walking in disobedience because Jesus says, hey, listen, you need to rest. The pace of your life matters, Aaron, and your ability to abide and rest in me really matters. And I wasn't taking that seriously. The pace of my life was too fast so that by the time I got to vacation, I couldn't even really unwind and rest with my family. And so our family vacation was good, but man, it was hard. And let me tell you about the goodness of God. God convicted me that I was walking in disobedience in these areas. Came back from vacation and kept convicting me. So I had to confess to my wife. I confessed to her, hey, this is what's going on in my heart. This is why this is happening. I went to my closest friends. I went to Dave. I went to Brandon. I went to Will. I confessed these things in my life that aren't where they need to be, and I repented of them. And man, I wish I could show you the difference Amy and I had one of the best weekends in our marriage last week. We went out and were able to enjoy her birthday and celebrate her birthday because the goodness of God, he says, listen, if you will repent, the message of Jesus is, listen, the kingdom of God is at your doorstep, fully available to you. Will you repent and believe and walk into the freedom of the kingdom? And so the question this morning for all of us is, are you walking in obedience? Are there places in your life where arrogance or apathy has crept in, and you're not walking in obedience to the ways that God has for you. Some of you are here, and you didn't even know God had another way for you to live. You didn't know that there was this relationship with God that was freely extended, and what you need to hear is about the grace of God extended to you. And either way, the message is, will we submit ourselves to God and repent of disobedience and step fully into obedience? So you can do that over communion. You can do that as we worship, as we pray. James says, listen, all we got to do is confess. If you just confess your sins to one another, then the Lord will heal you. 1 John 3, John says it this way, listen, if we will confess our sins, then God is faithful. So as we come around communion, let's just be an honest and transparent community with one another. Let's worship God, praise him for his grace, and let's confess the places where we're walking in disobedience, and let's repent and walk into all the promises and all the fullness that God has for us. I'm going to pray for us. Will's going to come up and lead us, and we're going to take communion together. Yeah, let's pray. God, I love you. And God, I'm, I'm thankful that you're like a good parent who wants to teach his children uh, just the ways of life. You want to teach us how to live in right relationship with you. Yet, Lord, I confess that sometimes it's hard. It's hard to hear this message that I need to obey, that I need to repent. Lord, would you come in your power, in, in the presence of your spirit, would you convict us? 
If there are places in our lives where we're not walking in obedience, would you bring us to repentance? Help us to repent, Lord. Help us to see the good thing that repentance is. And Lord, as we repent, may we have faith that you are good and you are able and you are faithful to heal our hearts, to bring us in again to right relationship with you, that God, you are so good and gracious to us. Help us to see that repentance almost always precedes any outpouring of your spirit, that Jesus, everywhere you went, you called people to repentance. So Lord, would you help us this morning, convict us, that we may praise you for the good news of the life that you give us in Jesus. I love you, Lord. Thank you for who you are, and I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.